How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jay. And you're listening to the Cinema Sideshow Podcast, episode 36. Yow wowzers. Yow wowzers. Yow wowzers. Yow wowzers. Yeah. I'll take that. Jake, I'm crook. Yes, you are. I'm very crook. Good Crooked. night, everyone. No. Um, <laughs> this is the Zeke is Slightly Sick edition of the podcast, so Yay. please bear with me. Have uh, you, you've been sick before on the show, I imagine. No. Yeah, I think so. I was think I was sick of those earlier episodes. Oh, I know, because remember, you got you got laughed at publicly at Terry Wyatt. <laughs> oh, really? Do you remember oh, yeah, that? Yeah, 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 you went yeah. to get like... I went and got the same something. medication, too. Oh, this did, they, time. did they laugh you out of the store this time? No, she, the lady was very nice. I went to Garden City instead of uh, Carnegie. Ah, uh, gotcha. And gotcha. Uh, hooked me up with the... She was like... It was a really funny exchange. <laughs> I went up and I was like... I need cold and flu medicine yeah. really bad. And she was like, do you remember what you got last time? And I'm like half dead at this point. I'm yeah. like, I just remember it being really strong. And she was like, <laughs> did you have to give your license? And I was like, yes. She's like, yeah, that's the good stuff. <laughs> yeah. So Yeah, you were feeling it today, I feel like. I, went yeah. to, I came up to see you, your yeah. work, and uh, you were just like, I'm dead, Jake. I'm dead. Yeah, I'm more <laughs> of that state where I'm like, I'm fine, but I'm so airy fairy mm. but uh the film of the week definitely has brought me back to reality a bit, <laughs> which i'm sure we'll talk about later on in the Work show you up a little bit yeah. but more importantly jake how are you oh i'm doing well thank you z you're welcome buddy yeah, i like i like i like what you're insinuating there that despite your health yeah that it, it, the, the more importance is to ask how i'm doing well i'm yeah. doing pretty decent actually yeah i should be more tired because i've worked on like eight days straight on sets yeah and i'm sure we'll talk about that in a little bit later we will, on in the we show will, but i'm doing good otherwise yeah. yeah caught any movies this week surprisingly yes a few yep a yeah few? yeah well i rewatched re- um source code okay of some of our um sort of required viewing for class Yes. Um, ironically, because I didn't actually end up going to class. <laughs> you didn't miss much. Uh, well, there you go. No, but I rewatched Source Code, and it was to do with like time manipulation. Right, that was kind of what the it was to do with this. Yeah, week. It's, it's linear narrative versus sort of uh, non-linear. And you're you're asking me to remember what was going on in class, and in that class, <laughs> I'm so zoned out half the time. But Fair enough. Yes, zoned it, out right it, now. It's, basically, it's two separate types of theories. One refers to linear narrative, one mm. non-linear. Of course, in screen theories, they turn that into a 90-page thesis talking <laughs> about mankind, rather than just saying some movies are in order and some movies are not. Yeah. I mean, it did get very philosophical. I mean, I went to the lecture at yeah. the Marines. So I'm not, not too far behind, but you're right. It was a bit insane. No, but I rewatched Source Code, um, which I did watch it back in 2011. For some reason, I must have got this film mixed up with Total Recall, because for some reason I thought this was a remake of another film called Source Code. Right. And it no. It's not. No. It's a totally just... So I was able to scrub it off my 100 movies poster. That's Because cool. I just assumed that it referred to an original version of the film that I'd never seen before. And I was like, oh, no, this That's is... That's on your 100 movie poster, that yeah, one? Yeah, Source Code. It's a bit weird. It is a bit weird. There's a, there's a surprisingly re- re- uh, recent films on that list. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of a couple. Like the uh, Grand Pool, the Best Hotel is on there. Yeah. So 24, what, 13? 14 or 13, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, maybe right. Maybe it is 14. Um... I mean, I wanted to say Hateful Eight, but no, it's not. I don't think it's on there. Django. Django's on there. Yep. Yeah. Um, I scrubbed that off many, many years ago. No, I might, I might like record it one day and, and mention what's like. I've, I've seen like 42 out of the 100 films now. Okay. Because a lot of recent stuff like Jaws, Matrix, Seven, uh, Fight Club, they were all on there too. So I was able right. to do a lot of catching up, a lot of coin scrubbing Is recently. it satisfying? At, you know what? It wasn't at first because I was using a $1 coin. 
and I literally would like rip past the because it's a like it's a little gray image. You yeah. scrape that off to reveal like a picture. And it's all yeah. colorful and stuff. And I would scrape through that for like the first two rows. I was like, this this is not going well. And then I grabbed a fifty cent coin, and it worked beautifully. Yeah. But no, it's not very satisfying because it's too hard. It's too like annoying. Like it feels <laughs> like you know you're scrubbing against this poster and I got it. This doesn't feel natural. I feel like I'm ruining it. You know. But um, the colors look all really nice. But I I wish I could buy a, a version of the poster where all the colors were just there already. Yeah, you know. That's I don't fair. know. That's me. Um. No, but I so rewatching Source Code. <laughs> I don't know. It was interesting. It was definitely pretty good. Like I remembered it being okay, and I'm like, yeah, this is. Yeah, up pretty I well. mean, the ending really does kill it. I think the, the the right like the overly happy yeah like complete tonal shift yeah like a nice little neat bow tie sort of mm. thing yeah I I can see that because you're right you kind of you're, you're leaning towards thinking that Jake Gyllenhaal's character's probably just gonna die off or something kind of bittersweet but no it's very what sort of the yeah. uh, correct me if I'm wrong uh, mm. viewers but I feel like there were certain things uh, like video essays out there that compare source code to the stages of grief. And okay, uh, I can see and, that. Yeah, and it obviously leads with acceptance being the last one, with Gyllenhaal accepting his fate and living mm. in the moment as per se. Yeah, and of course, kind of goes against that when the timeline continues. Right. Yeah. And kind of. I guess he ends up in like an alternate reality sort of thing. Yeah. Even though it's all a computer program, right? Mm. That's the whole. Well, I, uh, I feel like it, it. It was a little confusing on that front. Like all the time stuff makes sense, and I kind of I took it more as um. Like an Assassin's Creed, like there was a science to the way that went. I'm not talking about the movie, although it probably does apply to the movie as well. We can do Assassin's Creed one week. Uh, we should. I've never seen the movie, but the, the way they talk about memory in the games and how they justify yeah. entering your ancestors' memories, it seems similar enough to that. I was like, okay, I can kind of see where they're going with it. Yeah. Was it a computer though? Like, was that what the I whole? I thought that's thing? the sort of the thing, right? Like he's talking to a, com- he's in a ball. Yeah, I, yeah, and then that, that's a reveal when it's just the text. She only sees the text of what he's saying. Yeah. Um, I mean, uh, yeah, I guess you're right. I don't know. I'm inclined that there's probably movie. a middle ground between that and Edge of Tomorrow on right, the, okay. the deja vu esque thing, but that whole thing. I think Edge of Tomorrow and and Source Code both sit in that category of were really good up until I feel like the last fifteen twenty minutes. That okay, them down. So I can see that. I wasn't that. I wasn't that bothered with the ending. You're right. It did throw me off. I was like, wow, this is like weirdly positive and yeah. sort of like. On to the next mission. Still think it's really confusing with the, the, the reflection ball they go to in the city and they end up looking at the, oh, the, yeah, the big yeah. reflection s- sphere. But yeah, I don't know. I know none of that really. I watched the film a couple of years ago and it was it was just in one of those blocks of binge watching. It was a film that was in It just a kind block of bled of in. So yeah, it yeah. wasn't one that stood out. It was like much. it was like when I was what like a few weeks ago I mentioned like I watched like Mother and Tully and Wonder and, and yeah. um Blue Jay as well, but that kind of stood out because we needed to talk about it. And downside, like I watched all of that over the course of two days, so you're right, it kind of blends in a little. Yeah, together. Yeah, definitely. Um, but yeah, I also I also just remember that this was it reminded me of when I first watched Buried for the first time with Ryan Reynolds. Okay, and I like that, seen that film. Okay, well it's 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 very much more art house kind of dirty film than you know you expect Ryan Reynolds. That's where he talks to himself who's headless in a fridge or something like that? No, 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 nothing like that. So he's literally buried in a coffin and he has like 90 minutes to live because oh. like the coffin's slowly getting yeah. filled up with uh, sand. So the whole film's like him in a box and him making phone calls and stuff trying to get himself out. Right. Um, it's very interesting. I want you to watch it because similar to Source Code, I watched it years and years and years ago when I was in like maybe early high school, maybe even yeah. primary school. 
Um, and it just, yeah, just when you're that young, you just you watch a film, you don't really think about whether it's good or not. You're just like, that's a film I watched and I remember it. Yeah, sort of thing. I think that's fair. But, um, it reminded me of that in the way that this is my first Jake Gyllenhaal film I've ever seen. Like, it's just such an odd one. Like, you would think, like, oh, Donnie Darko or even um, Nightcrawler for, like, a younger audience. But, like, for me, this was my first Jake Gyllenhaal film. I was like, that's kind of I'd really weird. have to think about that, but I would have to say... Because Donnie Darko I only watched for the first time a year ago. Okay. Um, I still haven't seen it. It's good. But um, even, like, Brokeback Mountain or something, or, like, I bet there's someone out there, they've never seen him in anything except for Spider-Man. I Wasn't guarantee he a kid it. something? He was, like, a really young... Oh, maybe. Kid. Oh, I can't remember. Possibly. I know um, Leo DiCaprio. I think I, I, think I saw like, Maggie Gyllenhaal in a film uh, earlier than... That makes sense. Because of Dark Knight. Yeah, yeah you know what? That might be the same for me. Yeah. Depends if I saw... Well, yeah, no, I did see Dark Knight before Source Code. Because I, I watched Dark Knight not that long after it came out. Yeah. Not in a theatre, but not much later than that. Like, I can't think off the top of my head. It, which is funny, because I hold Gyllenhaal in such high regard with some of my favourite movies. Mm. Yep. You know, honestly, one of the first films from him I might have watched might have been that one with Hugh Jackman, Prisoners. Oh, okay. I, I, like, I'm thinking off the top of my head. And... Oh, and he's, he's in to- with Tobey Maguire in the Brothers movie, isn't he, as well? Which movie? It's the it's the Brothers ones where the Tobey Maguire has, like, a big meltdown at the end of that film. I'm he's in sure. that. He's in that too. I think it's called Brothers. I think. Okay. But um, he's in that too. I never watched it in total. I've just seen yeah. bits and chunks. I'm of it. I'm just thinking off yeah. the top of my head because I remember watching. I watched Prisoners pretty close to when it came out because mm. of Hugh Jackman. But he's the other half of that. Right. Yeah, so the other half of the of the screen, if you will. Yeah. yeah. So I think that would be up there with one of the first films I saw from him, which is which is strange to think about because I watch him in so many yeah. things. Yeah. Well, on my end, I've been continuing with this lead-up to probably the most anticipated film of the year uh, for myself, definitely, maybe even you. Yep. Um, I've been watching Joaquin Phoenix films. Gotcha, gotcha. So I've been trying to revisit one every week. Just to So I did Sisters Brothers Catch last week, which that. was yep. a new film from him I had watched. And I actually got two in this week. Um, I managed to squeeze in a rewatch of Walk the Line. Yeah. So the... It was a really good sick movie. I'm sorry. I was like yeah. dead in bed. And I was like, I'm not going to watch a new film that's going to provoke my thought pattern. I just want to watch yeah, something that exactly. I'm going to enjoy. And I know I'm going to enjoy. And I, I really like James Mangold. Yeah, yeah. Um, You know, I talked about Logan multiple times oh, on the show. Oh, we love Logan, yeah. And it's here at the Cinema Sideshow podcast. Yeah. Uh, I'm a huge <laughs> Mangold fan. And Walk the Line's really good. Nice. Have nice. you seen it before? I don't think so. That's crazy. I, my instant <laughs> mind goes to, I think it's called The Walk, and it's a Joe Scott Levitt film where he's walking around. I haven't seen that. Is it I've... called The Walk, though? Is that Yes. Like... Yeah, okay. But that's not the film you're talking no, about. No, Walk the Line <laughs> so no, the, it. the Johnny Cash biopic that came out in like 2005 or 2006. Mm. Uh, it has, stars Joaquin Phoenix as Johnny Cash and Reese Witherspoon as June Carter, mm. and both are very good in the film. Uh, it centers around, obviously, the dynamic between. Uh, Johnny Cash's Rise to Fame. It's a music biopic. Yeah. Um, before this genre felt very tired. Like, gotcha, gotcha. We, well, it was we a little gotta, while ago now. Well, 2005, 2006, the biopic genre was pretty mm. pretty fine. I mean, there weren't that many out there at that point. Uh, and it, it obviously came... I, I've always found I'm slightly hesitant now to watch a biopic that follows as soon as the singer dies. Yeah, because so, it just feels too... Like, what? what's the, the thought process behind making this? You're right. If it's too soon after the death. Yeah. It's like Steve Jobs. The amount yeah. of... I mean, they landed it in some cases. 
Yeah. Not so much in others, but well, yeah. there's two two films. There's right? two main ones. There's the Action Kutcher one, and then there's um the Michael Fassbender one. The Fassbender one's the one everyone really That's likes. That's a really good one. Yeah. So good, but it also it doesn't follow this the same formula, you know. And Aaron Sorkin actually has come out and talked about this how. You know, he just, it wasn't the kind of film to have that, oh, you know, big moment, you know, sad moments, cough, die, yeah. like every other biopic tends to do. But um, because it follows three very specific moments in his life and seems to weave a lot of the aspects of his life into each of these And And that's things. what I think uh, the Walk the Line one does well. It has, mm. It's not focused around Johnny Cash's death. It's actually solely... Mu- like on a on its surface level, definitely more about him getting with June Carter and okay. the intertwining year. The, like it took fifteen years of like courtship and hardship to get there. Yeah, but they got there, and it also like leads to some of the the biggest moments in his career, like uh, doing a live concert in Folsom Prison, which was mm. one of his biggest songs. But that was huge at the time. It's still, I think, up there with, if not the most sold live album of all time. Oh, okay. Um, I mean, that makes sense. Uh, a, a live concert yeah, inside yeah. a prison. You know, that's pretty awesome, um, especially for the mid-60s. Mm. And it also, it's, so at its central point, it focuses on that romance angle. It also talks about his issues with his dad, which were pretty well documented. Yeah. Um, and also how he lost his brother at a really young age. And... Focuses on all these aspects and does pretty good. Um, do I th- do I enjoy the the doc uh, the biopic more because I like Johnny Cash music? Obviously, yeah. um, I will be. You the mean first... that yeah? Then other biopics. What's the same yeah. reason why Bohemian Rhapsody widely gets positive reception? It's because people just love Queen music. Yeah. That's it. Yeah, and I mean, like seriously, even I watch that movie and I enjoy... I'm not even a big Queen fan, but every yeah. time the music plays, of course you're into it. You're like, yeah, exactly. oh, this is Queen music. Of course you like it, which is on. why I think I enjoyed Rocket Man so much because I'm not a big Elton John fan, but I still but, was yeah. made to like the film because the music complemented the story so well. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, well, that's me. And like we talk about, if you want to hear our Rocket Man discussion, because it's not one of our films of the week. I think it was episode 19 when we did yeah. John Wick. We talk about Rocket Man and that, and two of us, because I was a bit more negative on that one because I felt like it just felt like a sequel to Bohemian Rhapsody. So it's, I really need to rewatch it. I think you do. Because I'm in the minority. I, I've met I met people who didn't like it very much, but I met way more people like you and Jack who loved it. So Yeah. Yeah, I definitely I definitely would recommend revisiting it. Don't like and it's funny because I've I've just only had a flurry of people who have watched both of them back to back. Oh okay. and generally Queen the you know, Bohemian Rhapsody will still get the leg up on Rocket Man, but I think that's honestly to do with just it's Queen the soundtrack, songs and more. yeah. Yeah, I mean that ending bit. The ultimate thing is that I think the concert at the end, the twenty-minute concert, the live AIDS concert, which right. is almost a direct replica mm-hmm. of the actual event. Yeah, and I feel like that was the ultimate. Like, oh, you wanted Queen songs? We'll give you Queen songs. At that point, the might as well just be like, yeah, screw it. Here you go. <laughs> you know, buy, <laughs> buy a CD and our DVD for forty dollars together. Like, yeah. I don't know. I mean, they must have made bank on the reselling the Bohemian Rhapsody album. Oh, yeah, definitely. For sure. Definitely. I, I can't imagine they wouldn't have. I mean, I've still got some of those soundtracks on my Spotify playlist. So. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, what yeah. about you? Did you catch anything else this week? Um, So I watched two other films in particular. Yep. So last, I want to say Monday or Tuesday. I can't remember. <coughs> it must have been. No, it must have been Tuesday because I wasn't on set that day. Um, me and uh, your friend as well, Nina, we went to watch Angel of Mine, which is a Melbourne film. Yeah. So, yeah. Very Aussie week. 
Yeah, no, it's a little bit of an Aussie. I actually kind of wanted to do that. I wanted to get more Aussie films in. I just didn't have time this yeah. week. Um, but no, you're right. I wanted to kind of get some more Aussie Aussie cinema in my veins, if you will. So yeah. Um, no, we had, it was actually an empty Inaloo screening. So just you and her? Yeah, like literally empty. And then we were walking and be like, oh, look, Australian cinema, guys. Because <laughs> no one's here. But um, yeah. I, th- I thought it was a pretty decent movie. Um, I had I had some... You, you know that thing when the, you watch a film and like there's just certain aspects you're not sure if you like and it's more of a I'm curious why they did that more than a oh I didn't like that yeah I feel like I was filled with more of that watching this film because there were a lot of parts I liked I thought I really enjoyed the soundtrack the way they did sound in it um, and specifically the tension building yep because for those who don't know and we actually mentioned it a few weeks ago on our oh what's next in cinema mm-hmm. episode we had no idea what it was about it's about this woman who basically her friend befriends uh like another family mm-hmm. and the daughter in that family she's convinced is actually her daughter who died several years earlier in a fire so there's a lot of scenes that kind of build tension regarding that where she starts like kind of stalking that kid's mother yeah. and trying to kind of implement her way into into their into that family's yeah. life and they do a really great job at building attention and making it feel really creepy and like what she's doing to get in contact with this girl is just more and more and more insane and uncomfortable. It's, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's very uncomfortable, and it was a great film to watch in an empty theater because, like, me and Nina were being like, we could be very vocal and like, oh no, 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 don't do that sort of thing. Like, it was really fun. Like, there was certain when we watched the film today, there were certain points where it was like, I wish we could vocalize, but yeah. we can't because there's people in the theater. You know, someone did vocalize. Someone, <laughs> which I will we'll talk about in the second half of the show. Yeah, yeah, we got to remember a that. Pretty fun one-liner that he said, <laughs> which I really like. It's funny. I did hear that, but I didn't actually hear what they said. So we'll we'll get I'll be to sure that. to tell you. You got to tell me. Um, no, but so it was a fun like kind of film from that aspect to watch from the excitement, and they really do a great job at the the tension building. But there were just a lot of decisions made, um, in the writing aspect that just really threw me off. And then a good example is I explained the premise to you. The film keeps that a secret. The fact that she had a daughter who passed away several years earlier. Yeah. That's a secret for like the for like half the film. So if you go into this film with no context, I'm trying to look at it from that perspective of someone like, oh, is this just a really creepy woman? Like trying to get weirdly close to this young, like seven year old girl. But you knew about it before. Yeah, but we, because it's literally the log line of the film and yeah. it's in all the trailers and everything. So it's like the promotional forces you to understand, okay, this is why she's attracted to this child. It's because she thinks it's her own child. I mean, child. That's, that's probably a case of a group of people sat down to watch the film and were yep. very confused. The marketing team obviously elected to make the plot a bit more clairvoyant in the marketing mm. department. and But that also, in turn, ruins the cinematic experience because it may get more butts and seats, which clearly it hasn't if you're the only <laughs> two in the, the cinema. Exactly, yeah. But... Uh, it also confuses you more because you already know what's going to happen, so the twist is yeah. So not a twist. we're sitting there just being like, "Why?" Well, and it doesn't. They don't even really play as a twist. It just kind of it's like an offhand comment where we finally like, okay, she's finally because they do kind of tease a little bit. Yeah. But to the point where I was just like, I'm not sure if I'm meant to know yet. Like I don't know what's going on. It would have been it would have been really interesting to see it completely blind. But you're right. It's like that's the very first thing you learn about this movie. It's like, oh, what's Angel of Mine? You Google it. And I've literally, I've talked to friends about this film and they've Googled it and that's the first thing that comes up is that yeah. explanation. So it was just, it was really strange to me um, why that, they did that. And same, they have like a dream sequence early in the film where 
it's revealed to be a dream sequence and you're disappointed because you thought the film was going to ramp up the tension yeah like immediately and eventually they do get there but it just made me think why is there a dream sequence then very is, is it like a fake out interest level or did i don't i just i just didn't get some of those decisions i thought it was a fine film mm. um i i thought the ending was quite like kind of some of the reveals they get to i thought it was satisfying even though there could have been missed opportunities because they do dwell into her psyche and is she going insane? Why does she think this girl's her daughter or not? Yeah. They have fun with that stuff. And I feel, even though the ending was kind of satisfying, it was like, oh, wow, sort of ending. But it, I don't know. It could have it had stronger commentary and other aspects. No, I think it's and, fair. Yeah, and it's hard to get. I don't want to spoil it here. Um, would I recommend it? Sure. Why not? If you have, If you're not struggling for cash and you've seen every other film that's in cinemas now, then sure, why not? I'm not going to not recommend it. That's a hard it. sell. I guess it is in a way. It's not a bad film at all. I was just very confused by some of the decisions. Though. No, I think that's fair. Um, but yeah. And I also saw uh, Jack lent me this DVD, Sorry to Bother You. Yes. Which I feel like he's talked about in the show, maybe? Uh, maybe. He definitely vocalized it off the show. <laughs> so He really loves this film, eh? Yeah. And I, uh, from what I've heard, I think his love is warranted. Um, what yeah. about you? You've watched the film now. Um, yeah, I watched it last night. Um, before going to bed, and even though I was like, I was a little tired. I was like, let's let's just start watching the Siago, and I really really dug it. I was yeah. really really good. It's very stylistic, so it has like a lot of fun with the the colors of the film, the way it's cut. There's like a ton of like transitional like wipes, mm. like you know, kind of like the Star Wars thing on this. Yeah. And it's like, oh, this is really interesting. Like a lot of crossfades and stuff. Um, and they they play with the style a lot in terms of it's about it's about a guy named Callus who starts off applying he's he's desperate for money you know he's got a he's got a shitbox car he's late on rent he's he's got a girlfriend but like she's a bit more fed up by his passive sort of lifestyle so it starts off with him applying for a job as a telemarketer yeah. and he and he gets it cause he's got no experience but the guys he's like we're we're just a bunch of pieces of shit so come work with us um and it ends up being this kind of giant commentary on him trying to make bank and he befriends a guy who's actually played by Glenn from Walking Dead. And he's he's kind of the the activist who's like, we need a union. Mm. So he gets torn between this world where it's him and his girlfriend who's a bit more uh, radical and in the moment. And she joins this unionization you know, yeah. group as well. And it's the tab, uh, torn, sorry, it's being torn between them and you know doing what's right and justice and kind of equalized pay versus the temptation on the left side where he becomes a really good telemarketer. Uh, by putting on the quote-unquote uh, white voice. And uh, you, if you see the movie, you'll understand what it is. And all that stuff is, like, very yeah. fantastic. Um, it's him being torn between that world of, like, actually making a lot of money and kind of generally being a piece of shit. Mm-hmm. Sort of. Not really. It's like The Wolf of Wall Street on crack, ironically. Yeah. And then a titch without spoiling it. There is some crazy shit that happens. I know Jack's talked to us about it. There's a really weird twist. It almost turns into District 9 for a minute. It's really... Yeah. I've heard it is a bit uh, genre-defying and a bit confusing, a little bit extreme. I understand why they do this thing, because they they want to transfer it from power through capitalism, power through money, and then through this transition, through this thing that happens, it's like a very, whoa, what the hell? Yeah. And some people be completely, like, torn away from this film and I almost was for a minute I was like wow this is such a weird left turn but they need to do it to transition to power through influence and to show that and how like today we have social media and that kind of thing yeah. and it it takes a much more interesting 
level of that. It's almost like Robocop where they have like the, the satirical TV shows and it actually kind of weaves its way into the plot a little bit. Like he uses that TV show to try and gain influence on things. Yeah. And it's like this whole really cool thing. But I just I thought it was really excellent. And I'm I'm gonna lend you Jack's yeah, copy. I'll give it a watch this week. But yeah. Uh, awesome cast as well. I've heard. I heard Army Hammer's really good in it. He's really great in it. Um and then they have they actually have different actors to play the white voices. Right. And there's three particular characters who have to use their white voice. And um let me find it here. So David Cross is one of them. Okay. Which is just awesome. Uh, is it Patton Oswalt? Yes. So, yep. Uh, he's great in one, and then Lily James, who's actually the the waitress from Baby Driver. She's oh, actually okay. one. Of, she's uh, Tessa Tessa Thompson's uh, white voice, if you will. That's pretty good in the film. But no, great cast all around. I will but have to give it a watch this week. I recommend it. Awesome film. Well, no worries. Well, would you like to move into our uh, career section? Sure. The only thing. other film I caught See? this week, which I've we've talked about on the show again, my yep. other rewatch for Joaquin Phoenix. Okay. Was her? I rewatched that. Hey, yeah. that's the only one I've seen with him in it. I'm pretty sure. That's insane. That is insane, but it's a good one. It's a really good one. Oh, I, love, I don't really I want to her. talk about it that much because I would love for a later date to revisit. We could do it an episode on, on her. Absolutely. So, uh, Jake and I really like the film, as oh, do a lot of people. And we incredible. Will yeah. Dedicated episode to it at some point down the line. However, oh, let's move into career stuff because you've been a very busy man. Been very busy. So I I left. I finished your set, Hitched, which is all wrapped now. You're in yep. post, um, and I almost immediately jumped onto a set of another film that I'm working on. So this one I got a bit more of a uh, attachment to because yep. I'm I'm going to be the full on editor for the film. Yep. And I was also first AD on set. We've yep. shot four days, and I got one more tomorrow. So Crazy intense five days, but uh, as, as of last week, I was halfway through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So our last episode we recorded when you were, or the both of us Finished day two. Two yeah. days into a four-day shoot. And now I'm currently, we've wrapped that and I'm four days into a five-day shoot for this one. But that's it for me. I think I'm I think I'm think done for sets for the rest of the year. <laughs> After that, i got other priorities that's to a, That's get a big to. grin you got there. Oh, man. No, I'm excited. No, no. Well, that's the thing. It's like, it's it's a lot of intense work. And um, obviously there's there's... It can get really tricky because you know you have a lot of you have a lot of voices that are trying to get in the thing, and I'm this year especially. I was very happy to take a step back. Pretty much, I think I've worked, I actually counted this one. I think I've been on six sets. Yeah. This year, not including X Rental, which is you know a doco. Yep. So I really can't call it, but like I think also I didn't direct in any of those six. I was happy to take a step back. So like Otto, you know, I was like a runner or a unit uh, on Pretender. You know, your film. I was. I think I just did sound recording on yep. that. Um, and then I acted in the in for once, which I don't really know if you can get a hold of that or not, but um, I might find out tonight. See what's the deal with that. Yeah. Um, and then in, I was first AD in your in your most recent film, and this one I'm editing and first ADing, and I'm kind of editing cuts as I go along, so I can bring the early cuts each day and be like, hey, this is what it's looking like. We might need this or this as a shot, which is the benefit of shooting five days in one location. Yeah, is you can kind of treat as long as you have the actors required, you can treat it as if okay, we got five days in this one location, so we can be a bit more muddy with the way we shoot what and when to shoot it. Yeah, exactly. Um, so that helps in a lot. Like, um, I know we have we have two certain actors in tomorrow, and I'm gonna be like, hey, there's this one angle where I would like to reshoot it because of this reason. Um, and luckily, you know, Nikisha's directing it, who I'm obviously very close with, so. We have that relationship. I can very easily be like, "Hey, I want this and this and this," and she'll usually be like, "Yep, that makes sense. Let's go ahead and do it." So, um, 
intense, but I think we're actually getting some very good shots, which is, at the end of the day, that's all you need, really. That's all you need, yeah. You know? It's nice if you want, you know, the, the perfect morale between, like, cast and crew and stuff, but at the end of the day, if you all come out of a set hating each other, if the shots are good, and I'm talking about lighting, uh, acting, the mise-en-scene in general, as long as the shots are good, you can make a good film out of it. 100% agree with that. So, yeah, but uh, that's it for me for sets for the year. Because yeah. <laughs> I'm tired. <laughs> it's been a big year. Been a big year. It has. It really has. Like, I, I sat down and thought about this, all the all the stuff we've made yeah. this year, and it's like, wow, that's it's not not an insignificant number, to say the no, least. No, it's been a pretty crazy year. It's uh, mm. it's weird to be in, like, this time next week, we'll both be in a post-production mode. So yeah, exactly. Be really oh, chill. Exciting. It was a hectic week. Especially for you. Yeah, no, crazy. Well, you got you got sick immediately after your I shoot. I did, I did. So, what does that say? Uh, <laughs> says says enough, uh, I think. Says enough, Jake. I'm shocked I'm not sick. That's the thing. Uh, wait, two or next this time Yeah, next one, week. one more night, and then, oh, no, here no, it comes. Come. No, I, was, <laughs> I got really badly sunburned on day, the day after we recorded last week. We day had three. our day three. On location in the sun. I got really sunburned. And I think that's yeah. probably contributed to me being sick because I get heat stroke pretty easily. Ah, uh, gotcha, so, gotcha. The wonders uh, of filmmaking. Don't do it. Uh, wonders <laughs> of being pasty white. Yes. No, well, Amen, I, brother. I'm happy to move into our film of the week if you are. Let's do it. No worries. So, Jake, what are we watching? We are watching The Nightingale. I wish, I wish, I wish in vain. You white ones go fast, fast, fast. Get nowhere. I go slow. I wish I had my love. Claire, a young Irish convict, chases a British officer through the rugged Tasmanian wilderness and is bent on revenge for a terrible act of violence the man committed against her family. On the way, she enlists the services of an Aboriginal tracker, Billy, who is marked by trauma from his own violet-filled past. That was... I was enthusiastic. <laughs> yeah, unlike the rest of this film, where it's about to take a very dreary turn, Jake. Oh, um, okay. Right. So this is our first Australian film. It, it took... literally is. I checked the other day and I was like, "Wow, that's shameful." With the exception <laughs> to films that you have watched in your own personal time, like yep, Muriel's yep, yep. Reading and such. Yep, yep, yep. This is the first film of the week yep. that was Australian. I wanted to clarify that just in case we get corrected for it. Yeah, no, definitely, uh, yeah, based but, on the titles of each episode. Yeah, so this yeah. is the first Australian film that we've done, um, and boy, what a positive film this was. <laughs> what a fun time. So didn't you say to me... Uh, last week. Last week, mm. that after 20 minutes, <laughs> in, what was it, the Venice Film Festival? Uh, the Venice Film Festival. Was it Venice? I might be able to find it out. It was a film festival that was quite prestigious, Uh yeah, I think it was the premiere somewhere. I can Maybe get it, it up pretty Sif quickly for you. Or something. But after 20 minutes, most of the audience walked out. Uh, 20 to 30 people walked out, I believe. After 20 minutes. Wow. Uh, the Sydney Film Festival. So okay. Sif. Yeah. Yeah. 30 okay. film goers walked out of a theatre in disgust. Yeah. So, and I have the quote here if you want me to repeat it. Go for it. I'm last with the quote. One angry viewer was heard shouting, quote, I'm not watching this. She's already been raped twice as she exited the Sydney theatre. Well, uh, probably good, good point to leave out. For that was... one viewer who left after two rape scenes. Yeah, yeah there, there was were another plenty three. more. <laughs> for the rest of the film. Uh, two hours and 16 me. minutes. Yeah, no, I didn't know that going in. 
and uh, that was something we pointed out during the screening. It's like, oh man, so this it's going not not in a like, oh my god, this is still going on, but it's like, oh wow, like there's more story here. Okay. Yeah, okay. It definitely feels like uh, for most Australian films, you get a hundred minutes. Right, that's the you yeah. would generally. We can't afford any more than that. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, we've already raised that this film was made was seven hundred thousand as of I think it was like six seventy five thousand. Yeah, US. something like that. It's still sub a million, and it's been out for a few weeks now. So yeah, that's not good, man. No, um, we couldn't pinpoint a budget for it as of yet. I think Babadook was around three to five million for memory. So I'm guessing this is probably at least definitely 10. well over that. Yeah, but well um, over five. Sorry. Yeah, so that's terrible. That really goes mm-hmm. to show. Thankfully, unlike the other Australian film you saw this week, Angel of Mine. Angel of Mine, yep. Uh, there was at least, what, half the theatre film? Yeah, well, we, we saw this at Luna, and we went in one of the smaller theatres, about, I'll say, 30-seater. Yep. I was counting. I stopped counting. I was like, it was probably about 30 seats. Yeah, it was about half full. There was a decent number of people in there, so... Yeah. Yeah, it was a... Not people keen on it. Uh, shout out to the crowd. You guys weren't on your phones. You didn't talk yeah. at all. To be fair, we sat in front of everyone. Was pretty... Yeah. So if anyone was on their phone, we wouldn't have noticed. <laughs> in all seriousness, we were the youngest in that theatre by Oh, absolutely. Mile. Like, everyone else in this... Which may be even more kind of concerned, given the, the context of this film, and the things that happened. Right. Literally everyone in this theatre was like 40 plus, maybe 50 plus. <laughs> They're just watching young, young white males in their twenties walking in for this film. Yeah, they, they probably had some thoughts about seeing us walk in with didn't my feel bloody proud sh- about my being a young white male with <laughs> this film. No, Me and honestly, my skinhead. Yeah, Jake, your first takeaway for this film. Right, so I knew I obviously knew going into this is going to be an intense film, and it very much lived up to the high. I think that yep. that one scene in particular, everyone who's seen this film knows exactly what I'm talking about. Probably one of the most intense films of cinema I've personally ever seen. Oh yeah. Um, just wow, and uh, yeah, but um, overall, I I did really, I really did love this film in a lot of ways. Did it overstay its welcome? Possibly. I'd I think so. I think we can have an actual genuine discussion about that because we on the show a lot talk about lengths of films yeah. very much, and I think the pacing of this film suffered from it had a very good narrative thrust, and I feel like it lost that thrust too early. Yeah. Um, in favor of a little bit more character development, maybe in places that didn't need it. Um, but that's me being very nitpicky. I think uh, the sound design in this film, in particular, was excellent. I thought the performances were really great. Yeah. And just everything it's trying to do to put you in this world is it the the nineteenth century Tasmanian? I have to check this. Yeah, let's fact check it. But um, very definitely not a contemporary film. And a very big uh, kind of diversion from from Babadook, which is a very different film in a lot of ways, similar in, in, in some horror aspects, I suppose, but in every other aspect, a very different film. And I really appreciated that because I know, um, especially based on us two, we have very differing opinions on Babadook. So, uh, it, just to quickly yep. put the time, it was based in the Van Diemen's Black War, which was between the mid-1820s to 1832. So that would be 19th century. Beautiful. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. I, th- I definitely think Jennifer Kent uh, made a very, you know, despite what we're talking about with the grossing and whether it's making money or not, yeah. I think it was a very clever decision move for this to be her second feature. Not that Bubblelook was divisive. I think it was anything but. It is between the two of us. Yeah. Um, but I think it was nice to really 
do a very different film. I mean, in a as, lot I, of ways. as I said, you in the uh, car driving over to here. Yep. I do believe the reason Babadook made its money back is it does have that marketability of being horror. Yeah. Which uh, automatically gives pretty much any film an extra thrust, just because there is always going to be horror mm. dedicates and people that will go see a horror film just because it's a horror film. It's a genre that, yeah, you, it's much easier to, to make some Yeah, it's, it's, bank the, on. it's the action. Action and horror are the two big ones that tend to... Yeah. And comedy. They're well, the three. They're well, the that's three. why you get, like, Bloomhouse, and they just do yeah. horror after horror after horror because exactly. it makes money constantly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it may not make a lot, but it's a consistent flow of income, mm. you know? Whereas a period piece talking about both... Uh, Irish uh, 19th century Irish culture yeah from uh, Irish mix Im- immigrant with... culture yeah, yeah. Aboriginal culture you know Australian Aboriginals or like First Nation Australian mm. people it's got a lot less marketability to international audiences yeah you know, outside I... of film communities mm. who obviously will open their eyes to more of this stuff but would I be able to market this film to a general American or a general? British person or a general German person? Probably not. Right. Because I think that's another thing to point out is, again, a Babadook is less Australian representative in that way. Yeah. Like, you can tell it's Australia watching it, but this film is very much like, you know, it's talking about, you know, Aboriginal culture and it's going back to a very specific period of time. And a very Um, specific Aboriginal community too, not general. Like, that's the region-specific community to that area too. Yeah. And each Aboriginal community is slightly different too, so... Which I think again goes to why I think it was a smart move for Jennifer Kent to um to do a film like this because you know it's easy for her to be pigeonholed into horror after doing something like Absolutely. the Babadook, um but instead it's something that I think I think she feels like she's able to get away with doing a film that's this unmarketable I suppose yeah um but something I I guess or apparently you know from this that she really is very and I mean this film showcases a different form of horror. I mean, mm. it's own right. It's talking it's much more, more grounded horror. Yeah, it's talking about like sort of that the the frontiers horror. So mm. what it was like living in that period of time. It's you know we're both Australian and yeah. we both are raised in a society where we often kind of turn away. Definitely on an educational level. I know in high school mm. you don't cover a lot of that the like the settlement years. What yeah, it was exactly. Like living. Basically, in high school in Australia, you basically are told when the year we settled, mm. which is 1788, and then they jump immediately to the gold rush, generally. So that 70 years yeah. tends to go kind of unnoticed, where very much it was all about colonization over the various parts in the world yeah. and how wild that time was, You know how miserable it was, not only for convicts or Aboriginal people, but even this film touched on how miserable it was to be a part of the British Army, too. Yeah. A lot of these places were not habitable for white people, so they made them habitable at the expense of the Aboriginal people. So it just ended up being kind of a circle of misery for everyone. And it's kind of almost similar to how America today deals with the slavery era and how they're very hush-hush yeah. on that, especially Germany with... <laughs> With yeah. you know, World War Two and all the events there, like this man, don't, don't oh, even try it, to a, speak about it. It's an acknowledgement there. of it, but it's also like very much like let's skip past this as quick as we can yeah. without acknowledging <laughs> it too much. It's like yeah, we messed up in that regard. You know, this but, film touches yeah. on the worst aspects of humanity for all of these cultures. You know, yeah. none of them are safe from the negativity of this period of yeah, time. Yeah, exactly. It, I think yeah, you're right. This and this film like very much digs into 
kind of all the the intel i think one of my favorite scenes actually now that i think about it is when she's trying to explain to to billy that she's uh, from ireland yeah. not and she's not english specifically and there's that bit of a communication barrier there and it's like that's when you realize all these interlated um sort of well that scene that, the reason why that scene yeah. so good is it highlights the cultural insensitivity of both of them both mm. claire and billy because billy immediately throws her in with the rest of them like she's yeah, yeah. white so thus she's bad yeah exactly and, the enemy of my enemy is my friend almost. yeah and i mean her and her like the first time she gets told that she needs to get an aboriginal tracker she's so quick to be like like yeah racially dismissive because he's black you know like this this film succeeds in not making Claire this angel of acceptance. She's not immediately a sympathizer, like a sympathizer to the yeah. Aboriginal people. She grows to the Aboriginal people, and maybe not even just that, like necessarily the people as a whole, but to but, that one character in particular, but to Billy in particular. Yeah. yeah. So I think that's that's what this film really ticks. It really doesn't shy away from the ugliness of that time. Yeah. Without being like, I, I made a joke to you prior to the like the film coming in that it was yeah. like these films always like they they do carry that degree of of white guilt about them and this film definitely shows the worst cases of what the white man does at yeah. this time but with the character of Claire it also shows that acceptance or even the old man in the, the second half of the film who takes them both in right yeah 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 you know it really succeeds on nailing a cultural painting a cultural picture of of sensitive sensitivity acceptance but then also like defiance and horror horrible acts yeah it really grasps every aspect of the time and i think it, i think it definitely highlights the, the 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 worst parts more than the, you know the occasional goodness like you said with the old yeah. man if i and letting him come up to the Absolutely. letting billy come up to the table and it causes him to just kind of break out and there's a, there is a lot of crying and and misery Oh yeah, in this film, which um, is probably a more a product of that time too. Yeah, they, no. we're very much man if they were strong or were in a higher class, mm. whether they be not only white or black, but if they were a convict or if they were part of Her Majesty's men. You know, there is definitely a, a a larger picture on class differentiation that this film covers, yeah. um, which I really like. You know, it's, so, I love it as well because like it does address class in that way. But despite all the, you know, this, this culture attacks, this culture thing, they all felt very ground level. Yeah. Like everyone kind of felt, not not that they were necessarily subject to the, the rule of nature sort of thing. And there's a lot of nature um, elements of this film. But it just felt like everyone was down on the dirt, the grittiness of it. Because you're right. I mean, most of the film is them in the bush. I would absolutely think that this film is showcasing how powerful nature is. It's very yeah. much showing everyone in this society is a slave to the wilderness. I mean, you look at the scenes when uh, they uh, the the men get taken up to the soldiers. Yeah. So uh, they're they're up in the middle of the Tasmanian mountains, and they're all going slightly crazy over the fact that they're lost. And you know when yeah, that's when, right, like trekking up and stuff. Yeah, and I definitely feel like this this film this film showcases that nature was like the true overlord of this, and everyone had to conform to it or work with it otherwise yeah. they'd find themselves yeah you know, that's a really good it. point yeah yeah no i can t- i can totally yeah it's like see all those elements because you're right i mean that that kind of you're right it leads into the requirement for having billy as a tracker and even charlie for Absolutely. you know for the uh, the other group if you will and having him be their tracker 
But even just like on a, on a simple level of you know Billy being like, oh, we can't cross the stream; it's the water's too high. And then, um, sorry, uh, Claire. Claire's yeah. the one who's like, nope, 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 I need my revenge. I need to do it. And then she ends up, you know, having need need to be saved. But she feels even though the horse makes it. Yeah. Um, and you're right. There's a lot of nature getting in the way of that of that journey. Yeah, and like when when uh, Hawk and and such mm-hmm. are. Uh, up in the mountains and uh, spoiler because we'll probably dip yep, into some more spoiler spoilers, territory. Watch this film. Uh, absolutely, watch this film. When when Hawkins eventually, uh, him and his soldiers kill, kill Charlie. Uh, Charlie. Yeah. Um, they slowly uh, descend into that sort of wild madness. You know, Hawkins hands a kid a gun. Yeah. And says he's the sergeant now. And the boy is his new sergeant. So. And then look what happens to the boy. Yeah. So there's a real <laughs> savagery about this film, a raw savagery, which obviously is trying, Kent's trying to use to point out, like, how there was really no governing law. Law, mm. law lived in nice houses far it's away like the from the Wild any West of this. again, yeah. Absolutely. Well, this was around the time of the Wild West, just a kind of yeah. the Australian version, which was yeah. way more about living on the frontier. Mm. I mean, timeline wise, if you look at it, America and Australia did run on relatively similar settlement timelines. They settled in 1776. We settled in 1788. So there's not that much difference between the two countries. Yeah. Uh, just on year level. And yeah, no, it's it's real interesting. But for Australia, because it was so, everything was so far apart, it took a lot longer for colonization to take place. So the yeah. wild, the quote unquote wild west was sticking around long after the Wild West died in America because mm. every bit of revolution just took that little bit longer to get here. So it's really interesting to think about that. Yeah. I just, yeah, I just, I love that the film very much dives headfirst into it tonally. Yeah. And just like the fact that we're having this discussion now, I think it's really interesting because, the, yeah, the film very much, this is where we are uh-huh. and there's no there's no holding back. And I think that's where a lot of the controversy for this film initially, yeah. um, people walking out, is, is just how confrontational the whole film is. So do we do we want to talk a bit about that whole pretty much the first act? I feel like the first act ends with that that scene. I'd say so. Yeah, and I oh. think we'll, I mean we've already gone to spoilers, so we'll, I think we'll talk very viscidly about. Yeah, I mean about I want to touch intro. on stylistic overview before we cut okay. into the yeah, storyline. Absolutely. Um, so this film, as we viewed it, now I'm pretty sure, like you touched on okay. the '90s having this uh, like thing an at aspect Luna. ratio. So the aspect there. ratio is four by three. Mm. So the, the square. The basically the square. I'm gonna I'm uh, gonna look up quickly because you're right. We had the same experience in this theater. So this this film played it at four by three. Now I'm pretty sure due to the trailer being in four by three, that was an intentional choice by Kent. But we'll have to we'll double check that and see if it was either two point three five by one or sixteen by nine. But I can't imagine it was either of those. Because honestly, the four by three format worked really well for this film. Mm, it, it didn't bother me for a second. Yeah. No, and it sort of made the film feel like. Kent was trying to go for this approach of making like this 50s, 60s, more like visceral R-rated Western mm. sort of situation. The way it was shot, it was all very fixed camera positioning. There wasn't anything stylistically too, uh, I don't want to say ambitious, but unique, I guess. Like a lot of the things were very much like tripod shot, characters in frame, uh, shot reverse shots, some two shots. Uh, with the occasional like dolly pan <laughs> and uh, 
yeah. sort of body track stuff, but very simplistic stuff for the most part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it almost wanted to showcase, like, it wanted us to be in the film. It didn't want us to admire the film for its its. It, it wanted us to see natural beauty. Yeah. So by subsidizing that with uh, not lesser camera movements, but more subdued camera movements, yep. it could showcase how dangerous and also visceral the Australian landscape is, which not a lot of films in Australia do. Yeah, especially especially nowadays, like more contemporary films. Yeah. You know, I think I think there's a fear almost and like I'm not sure if this is true or not, but like with a lot of Australian films being like, oh if this goes international, we have to tell America that we you know we're not just bush and desert yeah. sort of thing. I don't I mean I don't know if that's true, but like I always feel like I that's agree. The this is the first perception. film I've ever seen shot in Tasmania. Oh, like off the top of my head, like yeah. really you mean like bushland sort of Tasmania? Well, that's all sort of Tasmania. Thing. That's 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 not quite bushland. That's almost rainforested points. In that's Tasmania. true. Yeah, it's it, you're right. It's more like I mean, yeah, bush in extent, but you're right. Rainforest like the, associated with the rain and yeah, it doesn't look dry. Trees never looked, this whatnot. film never looked dry. It went the complete mm. opposite route. Yeah, which is so opposite of what you see with the most Australian wilderness films. It's always dry, barren sort of stuff. This film, at points, almost feels like a rainforest with the, the way it's, mm-hmm. it's so damp. So it almost feels like it's funny that a lot of the cast are either Scottish or Irish because it feels like it's shot almost in like the Highlands or in like, yeah. uh, like the Irish sort of areas. And it, it even helps, um, oh, just because my hard drive, uh, it even helps uh, kind of push forward the idea of like all the birds that we're seeing. Yeah. And obviously the the very obvious symbolism that goes with that. Um, but you're right. I think it, it sells it a bit better that it looks more like a rainforest. Well, it's meant to over, I think it's meant to showcase the overwhelming power of nature. And yeah. Like that sort of saw. And it's why I said to you after, or I might have said it during the screening, this film reminded me a lot of Rob Roy. And I don't expect a lot of people have watched Rob Roy, but mm-hmm. like Rob Roy is a, a film that's set in the sort of Scottish Highlands area. And there is a... Very visceral rape scene in that one, too, that looks okay. almost identical to the first rape scene in this film, which is yep. a horrible thing to talk about, but it's... It, it's it important, feels, though. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Well, it was a very similar situation with uh, Rob Roy's wife being being raped by someone of a higher... Mm-hmm. Of, of, of Her Majesty's men. And, yep. and very much the 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 vast navigation of the the Highlands nav- uh, like landscapes drew a lot of similarities to this film, I think. So, okay, particularly with the fog, a lot of fog. Yeah, yeah, a lot of the fog and kind of the, the blurriness that it kind of adds, especially towards the, the later half of the film. Yeah. A lot of the camera work, yeah, I was like, it's quite like foggy, and uh, it feels like a lot of the whites were kind of blown out. It was it was really interesting. Yeah, but, I yeah. think it's, it, it plays a lot into character motivation too. They're they're all getting sort of more and more disjointed from reality, so it helps adding mm. that element. There's plenty of things that you could talk about, like the more crazy and, and unstable every character gets, the more foggy their mind gets. You know? Yeah, exactly. So, no, I I mean that you could totally use that because well, it, it's, it's supported by it's what the you're insomnia saying. formula. That, yeah, that, ah, that's true. Yeah, it's a good one. Um, I do want to comment so. Yeah, the reason I was a little confused by the aspect ratio thing is because it was the same screening that I watched mid-90s in that also had the, the 4x3 um, yeah. aspect ratio, and then this film did it too. And I was I was like, wait, is it just the cinema that does that? No. Both films were shot in the 4x3 okay. aspect ratio. So uh, this uh, Nightingale was actually shot on the Alexa, and apparently it does have a mode to shoot specifically this aspect yeah, ratio. Yeah, most, most cameras do. Yeah. Um, pretty I'm sure, reading... pretty sure your Ursa can shoot in four by three. Probably. I mean, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm actually sure it's not that uncommon. Yeah. These kind of features, and I just think a lot of people don't tend to do that. 
So I'm trying to find that the exact definitely quote. means it's a stylistic choice, I think, to tie it more to Absolutely, those yeah. earlier sort of history pieces. It always felt like something that was shot to recount Australian history, but instead, mm. when those did it 50, 60 years ago, they didn't touch on all the gross, visceral stuff, whereas this film does. Yeah. I'm reading a bit into... Okay, here we go. So uh, there's actually an interview here. I just did this research now uh, from, I think it's filmmakermagazine.com. It's an interview with Jennifer Kent. They do talk about the aspect ratio. So the question is, the Alexa has the 4.3 mode. Did you capture that or did you shoot in a wide aspect ratio to give yourself options? And then she says, uh, quote, we, o- we shot open gate, which is a 1.55 sensor area. So we had room to play, but in camera, we had the markings to frame for Academy. Uh, I wonder what they mean by Academy. I think it's established earlier. But I'm guessing it means they physically had the markings on the camera. Yeah, the safe margins. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so if there was for any reason a need to shift the frame in post, we could do it because we had extra room on the edges. But 99% yeah. of the film, the 1.375 frame could be composed for on set ended up on the screen. Yeah. So uh, we were contractually ob- obligated to finish a 16 by 9 version of the film as well, but that hasn't happened and it probably never will because it will cost them at least a million dollars to digitally remove all the C-stands and everything else that are currently put into play uh, on the outskirts of the 1.375 frame. But frankly, we haven't been asked to do that. That's fascinating. That's cheeky. Yeah, that's like just off frame. Does she then go on to explain why she did it? Um, let's find out. Because but... that would be interesting. I think that's that. That's the deduction I brought from it, is to homage films from the 50s and 60s that sort of touch on similar sort of settlement frontiers, like, style films, uh, but dig into it with a more Kent-esque, visceral, gross, yeah. violent <laughs> way of going about things. Absolutely. I do have a bit of an answer for you. Okay. Um, so in regards to... I think this is in regards to a question specifically about the Axberg ratio because it's similar to like American Honey, Gold, uh, A Ghost Story, Cold War, like more recent films that wanted to go back into this like 1950s uh, yeah. sort of aesthetic. Ken says, I really wanted this to be a film about human beings and uh, kind of not like a travel guide of uh, Tasmania. The strength of that Academy ratio is that it had a lot of height and depth but also very good for framing people. In Cinemascope, you could show a very tiny human in a big landscape, but in 1.375, we could feature people and still include the height of these amazing trees and the depth of the forest. Uh, and that's complemented by the one shot where it, yeah. it pans up to see like this giant tree that um, Claire's kind of sleeping on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I thought that was very interesting because you're right, it, go- it almost goes against the idea of like trying to show the epic scale of what's been around, but I also noticed the way people were framed, like faces and that was much more interesting because of the aspect ratio. Yeah, absolutely. So, so yeah. you want to dive into the plot a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. I think, so I think we should talk about Jennifer Kent's decision to be so visceral and up yeah. front. I thought that the very first rape scene, I thought they were all with the purpose of being incredibly confronting and uncomfortable. I thought they were all very well done, especially the first with yeah. um, Claire because obviously the other guy comes in and kind of has his turn as well. Yeah. After, is that after the baby's killed? Yes. Yeah. So after... Yeah, that's right. And the, and the husband's already dead at this point as this well. Is, this is by far... This this is the most... I think the most uncomfortable I've ever been in a cinema scene. Mm. I, I was, kept looking me. to you like with my mouth dropped as <laughs> to like... What, how did this... How did this get through? How? Yeah. Like... To the point where it, it was the moment where I definitely realized I could totally see why 30 people walked out of the cinema. Yeah. 
Because these are things where it's like, I don't want to say, is there a line? But is there a line where you cross, where you start yeah. to defeat the purpose of what you're saying at the, exp- you know, because people don't want to go always to, to see, like, and this will definitely, yeah. this type of thing will definitely mm. prevent it from making a lot of money. Yeah. Absolutely. It's just how intense, openly intense it is. Yeah. Mm. And this does not encourage people to go watch this film at all. I mean, it completely deters them away from it. And I mean, it was, it was shocking and it was mm. horrifying and it made the villains of the film. I don't know if it took, I honestly, like if I think about it, I don't know if it took away from the villains of the film because at that point they're so horrible that for the next hour and a half that we're with the villains of the film, I have no compassion or love for any of them. <laughs> All I want to do is see their comeuppance. But I, I guess it goes back to the point, and I, I imagine when you do something like this yeah. with like a villain character, the, the, obviously it's like you want to hate this villain character. Like this is a very oh, yeah. easy way to get the audience to just absolutely hate these characters. And when you think about it, this is you know it's very much based on this real sense of culture. Let's try and show you that these are the worst aspects of this time that existed. And we need to acknowledge this as a part of the history for better or for definitely worse, Mm. you know? And, but does that play into the, you know, the mustache twirling villain, which is something we talked about in the car right here of like how far is too far um, in terms of portraying a villain as a villain. But when it's like, well, they want, I think they want you to be uncomfortable. Like this is the reality of what was happening in the 19th century. I guess it, it comes back to if someone is that horrible, uh, their their polar needs to be like like their their mm. hero needs to be as good as the villain as per se and right and I and I think Claire the one problem I have with Claire is she she doesn't and this is a big spoil she doesn't get yeah. to kill him yeah and I think that really takes away from all of the act because. She really doesn't face. She doesn't get her like. She doesn't get to really complete her. Her arc is uh, when she goes into the 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 ga- the barracks yep, where yep, all yep. Of the officers are and gets to say a pretty powerful speech. Yeah, basically shaming but, him. Almost. Shaming him. But it it honestly, I I would have really liked her to at least kill one of them. You know. Mm. Well, I guess she, she did get to kill one of them. And in that very visceral, kind of violent way, and I feel like that. But exists... she got to kill the one that, no offense, was the one that was probably <laughs> the the most uh, redeemable out of all three. Even though he did it, he did do a horrible thing. <laughs> he killed he a, a baby. He killed a baby. <laughs> but he's also the one who felt the most remorseful and regretful about his actions. And whereas the mustache twirling big villain Hawkins right. dies in probably the most underwhelming way in the film he he's having sex with a prostitute and gets speared by billy which although is it is that him or the other dude no they both get speared he gets javelin thrown he gets javelin thrown yeah he gets javelin thrown and then the other gets guy gets over his neck yeah so that one's actually a half decent death the other guy just gets speared (laughs) normally and i was just like bro that guy deserved to be like impaled on like 14 of spears rather than one i I mean i guess I, i guess you can argue it's even a cultural thing yeah. In terms of, like, you, you look at it as, like, not specifically that they die, but it's, like, you know, the cultural iconography of a, of a spear, of an Aboriginal man wielding a spear. Yeah. 
Um, I guess I would have really liked for that. It's it's the ends justify the means, I guess, mm. and the 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 man of horrible things this man does not only in the first 20 minutes but over the course of the entire film he kills a kid he kills a kid yeah he, he brainwashes a kid that kills him he, so the end of 1984 oh my god except yeah, he's not a kid but oh he well. he rapes like four times in this film and all that happens to him he's still yeah. he's still having sex with someone as he's about to die yeah like I think he deserved more than that. And yeah. I think that's that's a that's a tribute to Ken making me hate this person so much that I wanted to see yeah, every yeah, limb of exactly. his chopped off and dragged through the street. <laughs> but then shame on her for letting me have like the most underwhelming death of all time. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I've hated this uh, a character this much in a film ever. Oh, I can't think of like maybe like hmm. there's no there's nothing likable about his character at all. There's definitely not any any of these characters, and and we think of some of our favorite villains in cinema history. They all either have something that makes us like them, or they have a charisma or a delusion of charisma. Yeah, about them. Whereas this character is just flat out bad. Like on the spectrum, he is yeah. like he's at the end. <laughs> he's right <laughs> you know, at the end. You know, we talk about a film that you watched a week ago. We talk about Seven, which you watched a week Seven, ago. Seven, yep, yep, yep. You know, even though the villain of that film doesn't rock up to the last 20 minutes, John Doe is so deluded in his own ideology that he almost sells the audience on his ideology, and that's what makes him such right. a good villain, an effective villain. And, but look at the acts of what he does in that film. Yeah, the horrible, horrifying. horrible things, yeah. Yet, when he's in that car ride driving over to that field... You're buying into some of his like the points he's making are valid points, and yeah. you as the audience go, "Oh yeah," like you still think he's yeah. a nutcase, yeah, and you yep, still yep. think he's horrible, but you're at least like you'll buy like, and I feel like we'll touch on it a little bit now, but I yep. feel like this film ends three or four different times. I think at least ends at least twice. Yeah, it's like I said earlier, where I don't know if it's overstays its welcome or not. I'm not really yeah. sure. Because it, 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 it goes back to that thing of, like, pacing in films is very important. Narrative thrust in films is very important, especially if they keep you engaged. And yep. I was way less engaged in the last 30 minutes than I was the previous hour and a half yeah, or so. Yeah, this had a Django effect for me. This had the okay, interesting. Uh, effect where after Leo DiCaprio dies in Django, that last 40 minutes just does nothing for me. Um, That's fair. And I, I almost thought of Tarantino a little bit in this film where I was like, this is really, you know, bleak and dark. And then I feel like... It's there's very big potential. The ending when they, you know, they you get the satisfying kill of all the enemies. Yeah. it could be so over the top, and it obviously isn't. But well, it reminded me of Tarantino. Just I think that's that. when 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 Charlie dies, who's the other Aboriginal? Yep, uh, yep, yep. Tracker, the, the older one, yeah. And he's the older one of the two, and it was the more the mentor to Billy. Um, and they're in the mountains, and yep. Claire and Billy finally catch up to them in the middle of the mountains. I was like, right, we're setting up for this big. Yeah. Last 15 minute fight where eventually they'll find Charlie's body, they'll mm. have a big farewell, or maybe these two will die in the mountains and mm. it will all end up in the hills. Because this whole film sells you on the wilderness side of things. It's it very much like after the first act and Claire and Billy venture off after them, the next hour and a bit, it's just them in the wilderness. Them yeah. in the wilderness. We're trying to sell the fact that there is no more civilization, there's no more laws governing. Mm. It's. And I figured. That was where the scene went. But then it continued on for like another 40 minutes. And then Claire has her big speech, which is meant to be her big completion of her arc, I think. Yeah, I guess guess it's her taking back her freedom. 
And if we think about that, how confusing the pacing of that scene is, she goes to the general store, tells Billy to wait in the corner. She gets a no from the general store. She walks out of the general store. She goes, she bumps into the two guys who she's been chasing for. They basically tell her to piss off. Yeah. Or they'll kill her. Then they walk into the barracks. She tells Billy to wait outside. And then he goes, she goes into the barracks and then does that big... It's a really weirdly structured scene. Yeah, that's a good point. There was a, There's a lot of pieces in there that was like, hmm, wait. It just sort of felt yeah. like... It really lost it in that last bit. Like, I would have loved for it to be a big shootout in the mist and a real ominous thing. And you could really hide a lot of the li- budget limitations by that too. I mean... Mm. At that point, if it's in the mist, gunshots can be, you know, far yeah. more secluded. I mean, there was there was nothing in here that made me think, oh, budget. Yeah. I, there was one thing for you, I think. Um, yeah, yeah, it was a, that CGI bird. Which I didn't even think about it. I, I definitely just, was I a CGI bird. It didn't bother me whatsoever. Um, but I think that was the thing. And then, it, and then after she does that big monologue, she then goes and camps with uh, Billy outside mm. of town. Then Billy gets kitted out in, in his, you know, native uh, Aboriginal get-up and yep. goes and kills the two officers. While Claire is kind of... She's there in the scene, but she sort of... Stum- she literally is stumbling yeah, up and down yeah. the hallway. Kind of of a passive role in that. Very passive. Mm. And it almost felt... It almost felt like that ending was added in after. I don't... I thought the film was going to end with the searcher's shot. Yeah, which was no, a great they shot. had a great searcher shot in there. Little shout out. Yeah, the the frame within the frame, and I honestly I thought that was down. the end. Um, I do, I do agree. There was a lot of point. It reminded me when I was watching um, the man who stole Banksy, the Doco, and I mentioned it. Gosh, I want to say episode twenty six. Uh, when I was talking about that documentary, there was a lot of points where I was like, "Oh, this is still kind of going." And it's like, yeah. and it does drive that question of like, you know, these you have a script and you have you know these filmmakers and you know the tirelessly putting together a lot of these scenes that Absolutely. when we sit down and watch it in, in that order, it's like, mm, do they really need this and that and this and that? And you can't, you kind of feel bad because you got stuff like Pulp Fiction, which I really had to wrestle with myself in terms of the pacing and the length yeah. of that film because that's a big, that's two and a half hours. Oh, yeah. Um, and there's a lot of stuff in there that's definitely uh, more boring than other things. I mean, yeah. I think we disagree on that, but like the butch stuff I find is quite a drag for a yeah. lot of the stuff. Um, while all the other acts of that film kind of really speed up. So it becomes that debate of like how important is pace versus the story that the director wants to tell. Like how important, you're right, how important to Jennifer Kent is it that she goes into the general store, Billy waits outside, he sees, you know, these people walking around, she gets rejected, she comes out, and then they come out, they go off at her, they walk into another building, she follows them in there, Billy yeah. remains there. So like all this blocking, all the structure, which is the way you put it, Um, you're right, how important is it to keep it like yeah, I that. guess I was confused because they got into the town and I thought it was the whole point of them getting into the town was to confront Hawkins and the sergeant mm. um, straight away. So when they got off the horse and they were like, yeah, we're going to go into the general store and try and get some money, I was a little bit confused. And then I was confused even with like how long it took her to get... When she got back on the main road and she found Billy... And then we had that whole scene with the old man and and Billy breaking down at the table. Uh, oh, well, don't, and don't forget about the scene where um, they have a bunch of other prisoners being walked and yeah. they all get killed. Yeah, on the spot. I thought it was a great scene though. They're all, but so. all three of those, like the 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 mm. one with the old man and then the the one with the average. I think they're all really important scenes. Yeah, like they're really or they're really good scenes. But I don't know if they're like 
intrinsic to the plot that we're trying to tell. I think at this point we we know Billy's situation. We, mm. Do we need to ram that home? Probably not. I don't think. I think I at this point they did. I don't think you needed both those scenes, like the scene with the old man and then the scene with the Aboriginal. You probably could keep the prisoner one, but not the old. Didn't need to keep the old man. Well, one. I feel like they complement because you have the darker side of how his race yeah. is treated, and that's when he finds out that his people are all being killed. Yeah, and that relates to the ending when he gets back home, and then you have the old man, and like that's the acknowledgement of like we can, I guess we can change, or he can find people that would treat him better. So I, I actually disagree. I actually think you need both those scenes together. Okay. But I agree with you in the sense that structurally it felt weird because I think the, the way the film is paced, we just expected it to end earlier. Yeah, I guess it felt like it was a very linear plot and then started to add a bunch of mm. chunks in there yeah, towards the exactly. end where it was like, oh, we're going to put this scene in there. Because for the first hour and a half, it's very much just it's very Billy focused. and her yep. chasing the bad guys, bad guy scene, back and forth. And I mean, we see the bad guys already... You know, raping and killing Aboriginal people yeah. earlier in the film. So maybe yeah. that later scene with Billy, I don't know if it needs to be there. Billy's already yeah. undergoing a change where he sees Claire is accepting him for who he is. Yeah. So do we need that extra level of acceptance? Because I guess the argument could be made that uh, the reason Billy and Claire get along are they're both outcasts, they're both convicts, they're both yeah, lower and, that, class. and that's the, that's the cultural and the the personal yeah relation there. And I love this little detail I noticed is that once we got to that point in the film, they would literally move and walk and turn their heads in unison, like when they're Ooh. walking, like it was in exact unison. When they both turned their heads at the same time, I was like, that's a clever little like yeah. nod that they're now on the same page, sort of thing. I th- I think the, it goes back. It's a nice reinforcement. It's a nice punch. I do agree with you. I think it, it, it could have been moved to a different spot, maybe. Yeah. I guess um, it's, it gets kind of... just gets a little janky towards the end. And, and I agree, I think the yeah. biggest frustration for me is the climactic scene just feels really underwhelming. And then two, the bad guys, I be it, they do die, but mm. they don't die in a way that's really satisfying enough. Whether right. Kent wants to go for cultural actu- accurate, like accurateness, yep. where it's like... Oh well, he's an Aboriginal man. Of course, he's going to spear them. That's fair enough. Okay, I get that. Yeah. But I also don't think. I think you nailed it on the head. I think if Billy had killed the sergeant, but Claire got to kill Hawkins, right? Okay. We, I would have been more satisfied because yeah. the way well, the that's, sergeant, that's what I said in the car. Yeah. Right here. The uh, way yeah. the way the sergeant dies is pretty satisfying. You know, throat. Mm. You know, spear to the throat. That's pretty. I mean, it's gross. Yeah. But you know, it's, we we winced. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it's kind of like I you want to. Especially Hawkins' character. I just feel like he didn't get what he deserved because he's yeah. literally one of the most... I'll try and find someone I've watched in a film that's more horrible than him, but he's, <laughs> he's got to be at least top 10. My my argument... I'm not saying she's worse, but my immediate fall goes to Umbridge in the Harry Potter series. How everyone oh, just okay, universally hates her. She's admittedly... There's no redeeming quality about that chick. <laughs> that's literally the only... Because you're right. When you but go to seven, her, when you go to like that... Is kind of, Good comeuppance, though. You, you're left laughing yeah, that's as she right, gets yeah. what comes to her. So, mm. whereas with him, I just felt like, oh, he's dead. Yeah. Because it literally was like that. It was, oh, he's dead. Whereas we take the visceral scene of where Claire kills the first dude, and mm. that scene goes on for like five minutes. And it's a really strong scene. Yeah. Real visceral. And, yeah. So, oh. that's sort of what I already have. I think there's one thing I want to mention before we get into the highlight scenes. Yeah. 
and it kind of is it is a scene anyway or a series of scenes is that Claire's having these reoccurring nightmares. Yeah. And we get a lot of them. We get like maybe five of them throughout the film. Yeah. How did you think what what did you think of like the way those were done? Cool. Um I'm not a big dream sequence person mm-hmm. um in films, but this film warrants them, I do think, cuz it has right. You could tie it back to sort of the PTSD of losing your child from a, like a mm. maternal point yeah. of view. Well, your whole family, really, yeah. Oh, it's a huge, but it's definitely with the whole thing where she wakes up and you know her breasts are like. Oh yeah, yeah, because she doesn't have the, the milk, baby anymore. Yeah, because the yep. milk's still reproducing, but she doesn't have the baby yeah. anymore. I thought it was a clever thing that, and very cleverly weaved in, but not like a huge. Well, yeah, it's not too line. on the nose, but it definitely adds to the whole. It's, reality of the situation. Yeah, it's just yeah. one of those daily things that she has to deal with now because of the repercussions yeah, of well, the event. Yeah. And as Billy says, he's there is a powder that his people use that can mm. dry that up. Um, but that does play really well into the sort of uh, maternal uh, damage that yeah. the situation has done. And that that was that was a horrible scene. And that scene is that's pretty haunting. That's right up there with like the train spotting dead baby scene. Right. Yeah, pretty, yeah. Yeah. Pretty full on, but. I really liked them. Uh, I liked particularly, I think, the last one where it got like... Oh, when she ends up in the water? Yeah. Yeah. That was pretty cool. Yeah, that's fair. I I guess I agree with you in the sense... I'm not usually a big... They have to do them well or interesting enough for me That'd to be care. motivated too. Yeah, exactly. And I think... I didn't mind them. Yeah. I wasn't like blown. I was like, oh, they're on the, they're on the cusp of being like, oh, this is really interesting. But I don't know. They, they didn't do it crazy for me. I'm not going to sit here being like, they should have cut them out. I was like, yep, okay, cool. They're in there. And you're right. It makes sense. It's motivated. I liked more the ones that where she was clearly dreaming, but she could hear her babies like screaming. Oh, yeah. I liked that stuff more where it's a little bit more subtle. Yeah. Like, the sound design's incredible in yeah. this film. I think that like, stuff. We just had good surround system as well in our theater. Yeah. Very small little intimate thing. Haunting. Um, <laughs> very haunting. Yeah. And you're right. I just like the way that the baby's like diegetically involved or is it? I keep calling it diegetic. Yeah, it's diegetic. Is it diegetic? I feel like I'm adding well, an extra syllable in there. It's not diegetic when... Well, no, I just, mean my, I just mean my pronunciation of the word. That's di- what I mean. Okay, <laughs> it's diegetic. It's diegetic. I, think I'm, I think the I, I, think, I keep saying diegetic. I think it's diegetic. No, it's I don't di- think the I is in there. It's diegetic. Uh, it's diegetic. Diegetic. Yeah. I don't know. You know what? It's the sound the baby makes. Yeah. And the sound's good in this film. <laughs> so, Jake, highlight scenes. Hmm... I've been thinking about this. Yeah. We only saw it, like, we just got here from the screening, so we yeah. saw it a couple of hours ago. Um, Gosh, I don't really know. I mentioned earlier I really like the scene when there's that miscommunication of whether she's she's Irish yeah. or, or English. Um, That was, like, a little nod scene, though. I wouldn't call it, like, my favourite scene from the film. Um, I really did like when, when, what's his name, gets, like, brutally, like, murdered and stabbed. Oh, yeah. Um, when Claire, when Claire kills him, kind of midway through the film, um, I guess mm, I don't know. I like I like when she sings. <laughs> I think she's saying that would probably be up there. Yeah, she's a brilliant. She's, like yeah, that first scene where she's singing to all the men. Yep, yep, yep. And they're all sort of inspecting her. Yeah. Uh that really does play into the latter scenes, which I really, I mean, without being like that scene where her husband Aiden dies and the baby passes away yep. and. It, it's horrible, horrifying scene, but it it really does set the tone of the mm-hmm. film. And f- f- you know, from a cinematic point of view, I think it's a really powerful scene. It's a horrible scene. Yeah. Uh, I'm. I would not. I'm not sure 
off the cuff of that scene, I'd ever want to recommend this film to anyone that wasn't of the faint of heart. I'd be very selective. Yep, yep, yep. Not this for the pain out at all. This sits in the dog tooth category of films that <laughs> I just... I, I'm happy to watch because I can sort of yep, try yep, and absolutely. switch it off. But when I watch this with someone who's slightly squeamish, uncomfortable by this stuff, absolutely not. No. That's that's my like question as well. Because like, like you said, we can totally understand why people walk out of this film. Yeah. But I could see it from like a, a, a casual you know, audience going, but like when it happens in film festivals and we hear about it all the time, people walking out of films at film festivals, it's like the audiences you get there are not the same as your everyday, like family going to watch Lion King remake. Sif's a bit tricky though, because if that was Sif, Sif can be a little bit more casual, I think than some of the other festivals. Mm, Okay. Um, Like if this was Venice or like Palm Springs or Sundance, Sundance, yep, yep. Um, I would be very surprised because they're definitely more the film film people. Yeah, but even then, you you still hear stories even from Sundance of people walking out yeah. of films. Yeah, I mean, if this was like Cinefest Oz, I totally understand <laughs> why people walk out because it's like <laughs> Cinefest Oz is mostly just either film students or like yeah. very people who want to spend a weekend watching alternative films. Let's go to Uni Goonies this year. Yeah, no shit. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, I'm pretty sure we have Cat Empire on that night, so we couldn't even oh, go. Oh, no, any. what a shame. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, Still hurting. <laughs> uh, still hurting, yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> no worries. Oh, my well, God. <laughs> uh, the Nightingale is currently out in selective cinemas near yep. you. Uh, we saw it at Luna Leaderville. Um, I don't think there are any Hoyt showings. No. So, yeah, Not look, for the faint of heart. you got to look for it. If you're okay with squeamish stuff and an insight into Australian film uh, from one of the probably more upper echelon directors in the Australian film industry. Yeah, well, this is definitely you know the, the directorial... You know, second debut in the sense that she yeah. went a lot more out there with this film, I feel Absolutely. like. Um, uh, well, yeah. so check it out if you've got the guts. <laughs> yeah, man. Absolutely. So. No worries. What's new in cinemas this week, Jake? What's new in cinemas? Oh, there's, a, there's a fair bit. So on the 26th, we have The Goldfinch, which the is Goldfinch. obviously based on the novel. I never ended up reading it. I've owned it since high school because I was meant to read it, and I never did. Okay, what's it about? Um... I really? think it's a kid. I don't know. Oh, it's a kid. I'm, I'm cool. checking now. Um, all right, cool. So, oh, Nicole Kidman's in it. So it's this uh, coming-of-age drama based on a novel, of course, uh, set following a bombing at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Uh, left motherless, left oh, left motherless after a disaster. A young boy is taken in by a wealthy upper-middle side family, uh, and oh, it's from the director of Brooklyn. Oh, okay. So yeah, um, I never read the book again, but yeah. Another one, uh, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, which I haven't heard much about, but I've heard there's a lot of buzz. Like, it kind of came out of nowhere on that. Oh, really? Nice. I guess it's a horror film. Uh, Ride Like a Girl <laughs> also comes out. Aussie film. That's an Aussie film? Yes. And, oh, is this, is this what is this, Buoyancy? Is that the one that we saw a trailer we for? We did see. We for, saw a trailer for that it was a, I think it was an Indonesian film. I don't quote me on that, but Something it looked like Indonesian. That. It was it looked... definitely a foreign film that was subtitles... Yeah. Um, looked like some form of interesting, yeah. Polynesian, Indonesian sort of area. It was about yeah. uh, dudes on boat, like the- <laughs> kids on a boat being like basically child labor yep. at the mercy of some rough looking. It looked cool, to be honest. Yeah, that, both that and the other one we saw a trailer for. I've actually got it on here as well. Um, Birds of Passage. So those were the two films we got trailers for today, and they're both foreign films. And yeah, they look shot very Coming nicely. soon. Coming soon. Yeah. Don't I like put how, that on your trailer. <laughs> I like how it just said, soon, and then we would like start laughing about it as the film started. Yeah, it's true. 
but um, it, not that soon. Oh, sorry, it is very soon because it's early October. So yeah. No worries, Jake. Cool. What are we watching next week? So we are watching. Uh, for those who miss our boy Jesse Newell, he's coming back on the show next weekend to watch with us the King of Comedy. And I'm thinking as I'm sitting here now, well, maybe this is my big break. This is my big chance. You know what I mean? You don't just walk on to a network show without experience. Now, I know it's an old hackneyed expression, but it happens to be the truth. You've got to start at the bottom. I know. That's where I am, at the bottom. That's a perfect place to start. Rupert Pupkin is a failure in life, but a celebrity in his own mind, hosting an imaginary talk show in his mother's basement. Mm. This film was directed by Martin Scorsese and is our film next week in sight of... Uh, In two weeks from now, Joker coming out, which I, from the first trailer of Joker coming out, said to, I believe I said to you and Jack, that this gave me hella King of Comedy vibes. And I already watched King Comedy for the first time like a year ago. Mm. So uh, I'm very keen to rewatch it again with a more analytical eye, because I went through a Scorsese sort of burnout session of his earlier works. I did Taxi Driver, King of Comedy, which I know you're going to try and take on this week. I'm going to try and take on... Yeah, so uh, Taxi Driver, King of Comedy, like these films and more have been very openly discussed as inspirations for Joker. I'm going to try and catch as many of these as I can before we watch Joker. So So I'll see if I can do it. This week's going to be tricky for me. Yeah. Um, But next week, for sure, I'm going to be able to get a lot of that in. No dramas. Well, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Sideshow Podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. And we'll catch you next week with... The King of Comedy.